KCSU FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and this year a visiting research collaborator at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Today, I'm for this last interview for the spring quarter on KZSU-FM and Stanford and Hearsay Culture. I'm excited to have back a repeat guest uh, returning from 2008, uh, where I interviewed Neil Natanel of UCLA for his book, Copyright Paradox. I am now going to interview him for his newest book, uh, which I'm very excited about, called From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright since the birth of print. Um, I am fortunate on Hearsay Culture to be able to interview people that span a number of disciplines. And this book is a wonderful example of it because this book is as much and perhaps even more about historical analysis of law as it is about modern law and the role of intellectual property today. Uh, Neil has written a book which has spanned several decades of research and goes back hundreds of years, as the title suggests, to look at the historical antecedents for what Jewish copyright law might look like. Now, this is a challenge in a number of ways that we're going to talk about as we begin the interview. Suffice to say that the word copyright is not a word that really comes up that much in this history that Neil has traced, but more focused on the question of what stealing and reprinting even looks like. From Maimonides to Microsoft starts with a look at recent efforts on the part of Microsoft to attempt to affect copyright law and prevent stealing or piracy or infringement of software within Israel and traces all the way back to these earlier uh, antecedents and, and looking at Jewish scholars raising, ranging from Maimonides, who of course is well known, uh, to lesser known scholars who question the role of authority, of law, of courts as Jewish texts were published and republished in ultimately what amounts to starting in kind of somewhat medieval ages through the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries as Jewish writing spread across Europe and as the printing press made it a lot easier to, of course, make copies of works. The book itself is a tour de force of historical research. And I, as I mentioned to Neil in the pre-interview, I'm amazed at the depth of the research here where Neil has looked at writings and, and ultimately uh, holdings from various Jewish courts, letters, commentaries as relatively minor disputes involving publishers were adjudicated within the Jewish legal system. The interaction between Jewish legal scholars and courts and secular and religious courts, primarily of course Christian courts, is also discussed here, as well as what the theoretical underpinnings of a Jewish perspective on copyright law would look like. Suffice to say, and Hearsay Culture listeners more recently know this, when I read books for purposes of Hearsay Culture, of course, I'm reading them in part because of my personal interest in what books would make for not only good radio, but the kinds of information that I think should be shared with a wider audience. But the highest personal praise I can offer is when I put notations on the top of pages of books which references where there might be cross-pollinization with my own work. When I started this book, I wasn't sure whether there 
be that cross-pollinization. Suffice to say that there is so much information and knowledge and wisdom in this book that I was able to flag it for my own stuff, which has very little to do with Jewish copyright law. So I'm very excited to have Neil on the show today. Uh, by way of brief background, uh, Neil teaches and writes in, in copyright, free speech, international intellectual property, and telecommunications, law and policy as the Pete Cameron Professor of Law at UCLA Law. As I mentioned, he previously authored Copyrights Paradox. He also authored The Development Agenda, Global IP, and Developing Countries. And most recently, From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. Uh, he also has a book coming out, The Battles Over Copyright, which we will talk about a little bit as well. Uh, he is joining us from Israel via Skype. We are recording this show on June 14th, 2016th for airing at the end of the week. Neil, thank you so much for joining us, or I should say rejoining us, on Hearsay Culture. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I'm delighted to be back. So, Neil, let me ask you this question, which, which I had asked back in 2008 about your background. Tell us a little bit more about your background, but more specifically, and I want to get into a little bit of the details of this because it's so fascinating, why you wrote this book. Uh, yeah, that's a great, <laughs> a great question. Um, I, 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 like I imagine many uh, copyright scholars in the United States, had no idea that there was such a thing as a Jewish law of copyright. Um, and when I, I was, I lived in Israel for a number of years, uh, and I still live here for part of the year of a year. Um, and um, I was married in Israel, and the rabbi who married my wife and I met with us before the wedding and asked me what I'm interested in. I told him copyright. Um, this is back in uh, 1987. Um, and he said, oh, I have just the book for you to read. Um, and it was a manuscript of typed uh, collection prepared by Israel's Ministry of Justice, uh, various rabbinic rulings in the area of copyright. So that was my first introduction to the topic. I, I found that just absolutely fascinating. Uh, and from that point on, I was in my mind that at some point in my career, I really wanted to delve more deeply into it and, and write a book about uh, Jewish copyright law. And this book, as you mentioned in your introduction, I want, of course, we're going to get into the history, but particularly for those who listen to the show who are scholars or who write or who are just interested in how books like this are written, there's a fascinating history of this book. Perhaps you could describe the 30-plus year research history of this book, including its antecedents with a copyright scholar well-known to hearsay culture, David Nimmer. Yes, well, yeah, David is a good friend of mine, and we teach together, um, and uh, quite early on when I found out about this topic, I spoke with David about it, um, and we worked together on it a lot. David made some very important contributions to the book. Um, we, uh, when I began to teach at UCLA, uh, we hired a, a rabbi uh, from Los Angeles and studied some of the leading rabbinic texts. Uh, and David was just a, you know, a, a wonderful conversant and contributor. We discussed ideas about the book, um, discussed various issues, studied the text together. Um, so I'm very much appreciative to uh, the contributions to the book that, uh, that David made. And he's, of course, I shouldn't say of course, but he's mentioned on the title page as the provider of uh, substantial contributions uh, to the book. 
And so you have a history in this book, uh, of course, that goes back millennia, but your own work goes back decades. As I mentioned in the introduction, the meticulousness of the research is such that this is simply not something that could even be done in a sabbatical in the traditional sense. Talk a bit about the research itself and the process, particularly since you are regularly citing texts that go back hundreds of years. Uh, yeah, this this book has been, been um, I think, the most interesting thing I've worked on, and also the most challenging. Uh, I I do speak, I, I practice law in Israel for a number of years, and I do I am fluent in in modern Hebrew. I read Hebrew, uh, you know, uh, legal law review articles and court decisions, and of course the newspaper. Um, so I thought, um, you know, that. Just like I can read Hebrew, I can read these rabbinic decisions from the early modern period, and um, uh, not that the book would be a piece of cake, but it would, you know, it would, it would not be an extraordinary uh, project to write the book. Um, as it turns out, uh, the uh, rabbinic Hebrew from the early modern period and continuing on today really is a very stylized form of Hebrew. Uh, there are many, many cryptic references to the Talmud and to other rabbinic rulings. There are a lot of abbreviations that are used. Um, so it was very, very challenging to work my way through the rabbinic decisions that I write about. Um, I, I hired uh, research assistants in Israel, including an ultra-Orthodox uh, research assistant who was very helpful also in helping me to work my way through the text. Um, and I was also helped, there, there, there is a monograph in Hebrew about Jewish copyright law, um, a couple of them, which, which were also uh, quite helpful for me. Although they really focus on copyright from a more of an internal doctrinal perspective, whereas my book is more looking at copyright from a comparative legal and historical uh, perspective. You know, and it occurs to me, Neil, as, as uh, in light of what you just said about Talmudic writing, that uh, many hearsay culture listeners may not be familiar with the way that Jewish law and re and Jewish rules are created, right? And the history that uh, Judaism has and Jewish culture has of commentary and more commentary that the Talmud reflects. So recognizing that you are not a rabbi um, and recognizing that the show is not religious focused, perhaps, and I think it would be helpful in light of the conclusions that you reach to kind of give a broad overview of this, you know, fairly unique, although, although not unheard of in other cultures, tradition in Judaism of commentary and debate and discussion, which clearly the history that you run through and that we're going to talk about shortly reflects. Okay, so um, I think to, to narrow the focus a bit, it's important to keep in mind for this book in particular uh, that much of the rabbinic commentary takes place uh, within a, a legal system of communities, Jewish communities, that have a large degree of autonomy. Um, so really going back uh, for about two millennia, uh, two millennia, um, Jews lived, uh, were allowed to live in various countries, um, and as part of the agreement, they were given local autonomy, a large degree of local autonomy. So Jews had their own independent um, legislatures and their own independent system of courts. And disputes among Jews were brought to, were brought to these rabbinic courts. Um, so the same is true with what I call Jewish copyright. 
Um, much of what I write about uh, involves questions that are brought uh, to rabbinic authorities, to rabbinic courts, um, and this is very much a system uh, of law, um, quite typical in the early modern and medieval period, where various minorities were, were given their uh, a high degree of, of legal autonomy. Uh, at the same time, um, unlike, for example, the Catholic Church, uh, there is no, there has not been since uh, very early medieval times, any central authority of Jewish law. There is no supreme rabbinic court. Uh, so as a result, uh, one has a situation where there are various rabbinic authorities, various rabbinic courts, um, each interpreting the law as they see it, and there's a lot of disagreement and discussion about what really is the basis of the law and what is the correct uh, doctrine. We, you might think of it as sort of the common law on steroids in some ways. And, and this relationship, I think, is important. And be, before we kind of get into what copyright law looks like in Judaism, the relationship between these Jewish courts and secular and Christian courts was a fascinating one. And one that, you know, to the extent that people might have any assumptions, um, was un, until more recently, uh, based upon a history, you know, a, a relatively respectful one. Can you talk a little bit about that interaction? Uh, yes, again, I mean, it, it was uh, part of the charters that were given to Jews by the ruling king or noble, or in some cases the church, uh, that allowed Jews to settle in a certain territory. Typically, under those charters, Jews were given considerable autonomy, uh, sort of, they lived in sort of semi-sovereign, I would say, uh, relationship to the governing sovereign authority. Uh, so Jews would bring disputes uh, before Jewish court, and uh, the ruling of those courts could even be enforced by the secular sovereign uh, in, in some cases. Um, at the same time, uh, the, the Jewish authorities always lived under somewhat of a precarious situation. There was always a threat uh, hanging in the air that Jews uh, that could be expelled, that this, the sovereign authority could step in. Um, uh, there, were, there were disputes, uh, and this happened in copyright a number of times, where a, a non-Jewish publisher published um, Hebrew books, uh, books of interest to the Jewish community, uh, and, and they, of course, sought protection uh, under the secular authorities, not the rabbinic court. So there was some tension there in, in those situations. So we're chatting with uh, Professor Neil Natanel of UCLA Law, author of the book From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. So, so I mentioned in the introduction, Neil, that the word copyright isn't really used uh, in the history that you run through. Uh, and, of course, the question I'm going to ask now you could spend the next 50 minutes on, but we, we're going to fine-grain it. So let's just start at a very top level. Is there an overarching arching Jewish perspective on copyright. Before we get into some of the granularity, it, would you describe a perspective or a view that is generally dominant within this history that you discuss? Well, like, like so many things in, in Jewish law and rabbinic literature, there's, there's a debate, right? There's lots and lots of different opinions. So I, I, I would not say there is one single overarching view. Uh, but I, I would say that the majority view um, views 
the rights of authors and, and, and publishers, um, more along the lines of what we might think of as unfair competition um, than what we think of as a right of literary property. I mean, there are rabbis who argue that there is something akin to a right of literary property, but that is a minority view and one that um, has come about fairly recently. So the primary view is that there, there's a right um, of a publisher primarily to recover the publisher's investment in the initial printing of a work. Um, and, and once the initial printing is sold out, then uh, anyone else is free to, uh, to print that work in competition with the original uh, publisher. And that that worldview, of course, is one that makes this book uh, not just an interest to historians, but really uh, quite modern given, as you allude to, and I want to talk about now, Microsoft's use of Jewish law to enforce uh, its copyrights uh, in Israel. Uh, tell us a little bit about that story and then really what I think, how it ties to this, uh, this thread of wrongful competition and even theft within the uh, string of Jewish copyright law. Yeah. So uh, we'll, I'll take it back to the 1990s. Uh, Israel had a, a reputation of, of being called a, a one-disc country among software producers. So software producers would sell one disc of their software in Israel, and you know, the word was it would then get copied and copied, and uh, there's you know, lots and lots of uh, piracy. Uh, so Microsoft Israel and the uh, Business Software Alliance decided uh, to to wage a campaign against this, and they brought a number of lawsuits in Israeli civil courts um, under civil, uh, you know, secular Israeli copyright law. Uh, but Microsoft was also advised that um, in order to have a greater impact uh, in Israel's ultra-Orthodox communities, um, they should seek a ruling from a rabbinic court uh, that it is a violation of rabbinic, of Jewish law, uh, to pirate Microsoft's software. So they did this, they petitioned the High Rabbinic Court of B'nai Brock, which is an ultra-Orthodox city next to Tel Aviv, uh, and they got a ruling, a, a rather curt one-paragraph ruling uh, signed by about a half a dozen of some of the, the leading figures in Israel's Orthodox, uh, ultra-Orthodox rabbinic establishment. Um, but that ruling, quite interestingly, uh, prohibits uh, copying uh, uh, software uh, and selling it cheaply, right? So, not, uh, which raises the question, uh, well, what about copying the software just for oneself? Right. Or copying the software and sharing it for free? Or selling hardware, which is loaded with uh, Microsoft software, which has been copied uh, and is given away for free with the computer? Um, as sort of a lost leader for selling uh, the hardware. Uh, the ruling quite intriguingly doesn't mention any of that. Uh, it doesn't expressly say it's permitted, um, but neither does it say it's prohibited. Um, and if one digs a little deeper and looks at the how Jewish copyright law has developed over the centuries, uh, one sees that there is a sort of very strong view that uh, the rights of the publisher, the creator, are really an, an economic right uh, to recover the initial investment. Uh, and if there's copying that doesn't cause economic harm, it's, it's not prohibited. 
the the thread here of wrongful competition of, of viewing copyright as a tort uh, almost based uh, law is as you mentioned not one that dominates uh, in the United States um, and as many listeners know the utilitarian theory um, is the one that dominates for the most part US copyright law that is that we create these rights in order to incentivize the creation of new works and by giving those rights to authors we hope that we're able to advance human knowledge in reading the book neil i didn't see that that idea comes up much although there may be allusions to it when you've cited scholars and and judges who have pointed out an interest in the widest possible dissemination of jewish texts Having said that, is it fair to say that the utilitarian theory as we understand it today has not been a focus of Jewish copyright law? Well, I would say yes and no. Um, uh, it, it is a, a paramount – first of all, let me go back and say that the subject matter of these rabbinic decisions are overwhelmingly uh, works of study of uh, Jewish law and literature and, uh, and religion. Right? So we're not talking about the applicability, at least going through most of history, the applicability of Jewish law to secular works. Um, so within that, that world of rabbinic literature, um, it is of paramount importance to uh, the rabbinic scholars and rabbinic judges to promote the study of what's called the study of the Torah, which means more broadly the study of Jewish law, uh, morals, and, and religion. Um, so there, there is, they certainly don't refer to the you know, English utilitarian tradition, but there, there is a notion that comes up that the, the reason why we provide these short-term uh, exclusive rights to publishers of seminal Jewish texts, uh, firstly is because without that, uh, they wouldn't invest in, in publishing them. And it's very important that they publish them. And then secondly, we limit the exclusive right because it's also vitally important uh, that Jewish readers, the Jewish community, have access at a reasonable prices uh, to these important texts of Jewish learning. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think quite, quite fascinatingly, there, there is somewhat of the same balance, that same tension we see uh, in secular copyright, at least in the United States, we also see that in, in Jewish copyright. The desire on one hand, the felt need to provide a short-term exclusive right, to provide uh, the necessary incentive uh, to uh, produce uh, important works. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, the desire to limit that right um, uh, as necessary uh, to allow competition to lower the prices and to, to provide access uh, to important, important texts. We're chatting with Professor Neil Natano, author of the book From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. Um, Neil, let me ask you this, and, and, and I, I think it's helpful here uh, to understand, as you've just alluded to, kind of what the typical copyright dispute looks like in Jewish history. And I think the way to approach that is uh, to ask you to talk about reprinting bands um, and what those are and how they differ from a modern copyright infringement lawsuit. All right, well, first let me uh, go back up a little bit and say that even in the, in the non-Jewish secular world, right before 
before there was a secular, I'm sorry, before there was a modern copyright law, right? The first one uh, being the Statute of Anne of, of 1710. Um, before that, the primary system of providing incentives to publishers to uh, publish new books or new editions of old books uh, was something called book privileges or printing privileges. So a publisher would uh, petition the local ruler um, for the exclusive right for a number of years, a set number of years, it was typically anywhere between two and 25 years, uh, to print a particular book. Uh, and these rabbinic reprinting bans um, pretty much follow that same model with some, some differences. So uh, a publisher, someone who wanted to publish a, it could have been, a, it could be a new edition of a, an old Jewish book or who wanted to create and publish a, a, a new work, uh, would petition rabbis and, and ask them for a ruling. Um, typically, they would, would praise the book, but would also state, and this ruling would be printed in the first pages of the book, uh, would say that no one else is allowed to reprint this book or any version of it for a set number of years. It would typically be 10 years, although that period varied. Um, and if anyone violates that, they would be subject to excommunication. So that's how these, uh, that's how these were enforced. And there were thousands of these rabbinic reprinting bans that were issued and then printed uh, within the first pages of the book as, as so, sort of a rough equivalent to, uh, to copyright. The notion of stealing um, is one that comes up here, and it's interesting, I think, to get into it before we take a break, because the modern battles around copyright law and the creation of copyright law has often drawn a distinction between the use of the word infringement and the use of the word stealing or piracy. Um, and, you know, certainly semantics matter when it comes to policy analysis and debate. And it appears that that is also a distinction within Jewish law. Is there a distinction between infringement and stealing within Jewish copyright tradition? Um, th those terms are not much used. I mean, even the term infringement is not is not much used in Jewish uh, uh, copyright law. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you mentioned, the term copyright is a very recent use in the, in, in rabbinic literature. I mean, it, it wasn't even used until you know, I would say thirty years ago or so. Um, uh, and it's it's a minority view, uh, uh, even that an author has a right of what we would think of as literary property uh, in the work. Uh, so certainly most rabbis would not characterize uh, the unlawful reprinting of a work as something which is akin to, to stealing, because it isn't even a property right which, which is at stake. It's, it's, it's really more of uh, something which is akin to wrongful or, or unfair competition. It's, it's depriving the uh, initial publisher of uh, the ability to earn a livelihood, right? To, to recover the publisher's investment from uh, from the printing of the work. Maybe, and yeah, yeah. E even among those rabbinic scholars today that do view copyright in terms of a right of property, uh, there's a tendency to view it, uh, what we would call infringement, as an unlawful use of the work, not actually stealing the work, because, because uh, rabbinic um, 
teaching has a very sort of strict view of what can count as property and what can can count as as stealing. The the nature of uh, maybe maybe let me frame the question a little bit differently to, to to see if the answer might be different. The the notion of theft or stealing does I think have a moral and normative aspect to it in the sense that we decide that this behavior is wrong or right and that behavior is not. Uh, whereas infringement, at least in my mind, reflects more of a violation of a right which may or may not have a moral dimension to it. Um, is that an oversimplification of the distinction that you that 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 might exist in Jewish copyright law? In other words, I guess what I'm saying is um, it wouldn't be too surprising that that uh, any scholars within any religious tradition would be viewing uh, the law through the lens of right and wrong or morality. But is that a sufficient explanation or an appropriate explanation for how Jewish scholars came to identify something which they didn't call copyright but looks a lot like it? I don't. I don't think so. I think um, you know even the the doctrine of uh, wrongful competition in Jewish law is understood to be a moral wrong, right? So if someone engages in that kind of wrongful competition, um, uh, there's a moral dimension to it. Um, so unlike, you know, perhaps would you say the distinction in secular copyright today between infringement, which kind of sounds like more of a sort of a policy trade-off versus stealing, which obviously is weighted morally, um, in Jewish law, uh, the, to commit uh, wrongful competition by uh, reprinting and therefore depriving someone else of the ability to recover their investment, um, would, would have a moral dimension. We're chatting with Professor Neil Natano, author of the book From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print on KZUSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. For those of you that listen to Hearsay Culture regularly, you know that KZSU is a non-profit, non-commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to make a donation to KZSU. You could email our underwriting department at underwriting at KZSU or you can go to our webpage and click on Donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, I do hope that you continue to listen to the station and to the show. So, so Neil, let's let's turn a little bit to in this history. You know what what appeared until you know roughly uh, two hundred years ago to be a fairly you know successful, if you will, or at least tolerant role of Jewish courts. And you point out changes that started to occur in the first half of the 19th century where this autonomy as you've, def as you've defined it uh, for Jewish courts to settle affairs among Jews and even to some degree to settle uh, some disputes between Jews and non-Jews suddenly took a turn. Uh, tell us a little bit about that peaceful relationship and, and how and why it changed during that time. Yeah, it, it really changed uh, due to the forces of modernization and emancipation that took place uh, beginning in the 19th century. Um, so um, as part of modernization uh, um, and emancipation, uh, Jewish courts were stripped of their, their autonomy and their legal power. So they, 
Um, you know, this partly came about certainly in the in the areas of the world that were most relevant to Jews who lived mostly in, in Eastern Europe, uh, the Prussian Empire, the Russian Empire, the Austrian Empire. They were not democracies by any means, um, but they did assert uh, modernization. They insisted that any dispute be brought, brought before uh, the civil courts, um, and they largely stripped rabbis of their juridical uh, autonomy, uh, which puts rabbis who very much wanted to maintain the importance of, of Jewish law for Jews uh, in a difficult position. The the nature of that change is one that uh, I think also reflects to some degree uh, the modernization and integration of societies. Uh, and it's a question which sounds, this is a question which sounds very legalistic, but I think is very important because throughout this period, there there is a question, of course, of how these edicts coming out of Jewish courts would be enforced in the first place. In other words, it takes respect for the jurisdiction of the court for the edict to have any meaning. And while that would make some intuitive sense among the Jewish community, I think it's very interesting that that secular and Christian courts also treated these decisions with with some amount of full faith and credit, uh, to use the that American concept. Talk a little bit about how these edicts were actually enforced within the broader publishing community, which, of course, you know, crossed uh, communal boundaries. Right. Uh, by the broader publishing community, you mean Jews and, and non-Jews? Yes, or? yeah, just in, in, in generally speaking, right, without, without regard to the Jewish community's uh, willingness to, uh, to accept the authority of Jewish courts, we saw right. enforcement outside the Jewish community itself. Right. Well, the only way there were the rabbinic courts, uh, or the primary, I wouldn't say the only way, the primary way uh, rabbinic courts could enforce their decrees um, was through what's called harem, which basically means excommunication from the Jewish community. Um, and that was a very severe punishment. Um, you know, during the medieval and early modern period, uh, if you were excommunicated from your community, you really had nowhere to go. I mean, this, the, people did not live in assimilated secular societies. Um, so that really was a, a very effective um, enforcement uh, system of uh, mechanism of enforcement. Um, we, we do not have evidence that so, so all these rabbinic edicts uh, were issued in the era of copyright, that there'd be a reprinting ban, no one else may reprint this book for 10 years on penalty of excommunication. Uh, and the way the rabbis could enforce this indirectly against non-Jewish publishers would be to say that any Jew who buys a book or who assists a, a non-Jewish publisher in the printing of, um, in reprinting this book during the period of exclusivity will also be subject to excommunication. Um, so this was not just sort of uh, full faith and credit in the sense that other people would accept it. There, were, there was a very specific mechanism for enforcing these decrees. Uh, I was not able to find um, any uh, data on how often uh, the penalty of excommunication was actually exacted uh, in disputes among publishers, but it certainly was there in, in every single reprinting ban. That was, that was the threat. Uh, what happened in the 19th century, though, was that as part of the process of modernization, 
um, the secular authorities uh, forbade rabbis from issuing a decree of excommunication. So that took all the, the legal teeth um, out of these rabbinic edicts. So Neil, let, let me let's turn a little bit, and we have about fifteen or so minutes left. I'm getting close to what I call the unfair portion of the show, where you have less time to answer questions than you might like. Uh, because because one thing which seems notably absent, although when I ask you if you came across any disputes of this nature, were uh, disputes involving something that we might think of as fair use today, right? Which which I'll just for purposes of this discussion define as uh, permissible. Uh, uses of copyrighted works uh, that exist without the permission of the author. Um, are there any examples of speech-based concepts like fair use being adjudicated or even coming up uh, in this uh, history that you go through? Uh, no, there isn't. There, there is not. I mean, I, there are sort of rough equivalents to what we might call fair use. Um, for example, if the right is uh, is not a right of, if, the, if the copyright is not a right of literary property, but rather an economic right against wrongful competition, um, it would not be a violation to copy for oneself, uh, for example, or, or maybe to make a different version uh, of the work. Um, but certainly the rabbis do not analyze that in terms of anything like free speech or what we would think of as, as the theory or ideology of fair use. Do, and what's your thinking as to why? Why wouldn't it would seem that although clearly it is easier to make those kinds of changes uh, and to you know develop new works with technology today, it would stand to reason, would it not, that there would be at some point this kind of dispute or discussion within the Jewish uh, copyright history, and yet you don't come across it? Any theories or explanations as to why this wouldn't have arisen? I think the primary reason is that many uses that we would see as a fair use, so like a transformative use, a parody, um, um, a, a different version, or, or certain, you know, you know, arguably private uses. I know it's, it's disputable as to whether those are fair use or not. Um, those simply would not be understood to be infringements to begin with. Um, so it would be unlikely uh, to come up. Now, it's related to that issue. Please, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah primarily, the, uh, most of these disputes in, in the rabbinic literature are, have to do with disputes between publishers. The role, the role of the author also is, is really quite limited. Um, in, in Jewish copyright law. Well, that I'm glad you brought that up because that is something I wanted to discuss. You know, and this is a debate which, of course, continues today. Right? Is is the copyright uh, a right that uh, is focused more on publishers of works or authors themselves? And this debate, of course, uh, occurs regularly and still occurs in the context of everything from uh, legal academic publishing. Uh, to uh, traditional entertainment, so so perhaps expand on that. The the it it would seem to me uh, that Jewish law does very much follow that traditional model of copyright vesting primarily in publishers. Am I right about that? Yes, these rabbinic reprinting bans, for example, which has been the primary vehicle um, for according these, these protections of Jewish copyright law, um, they would be issued and applied. Uh, for a new edition of what we would think of as a public domain work. So, for example, the 
of the Talmud, which was codified and, and written um, you know, in the early, uh, before the medieval period, even. Um, so a new edition of the Talmud could qualify for a reprinting ban. The, the idea is that uh, it would cost considerable time, expense, and risk to produce a new edition of this old work, and therefore there should be a period of exclusivity to protect the publisher. Uh, having said that, uh, the first rabbi uh, to recognize, and I, I explained in the book, I think he really borrowed the concept of literary property from secular law. The first rabbi to recognize and bring into Jewish law this concept of literary property uh, held that even if a publisher has a more limited right, an author, the creator of a new work, has a perpetual property right uh, in his work. So, Neil, let, let me ask you this, because I think it relates to it. Um, there is an undercurrent of interest in censorship, of controlling speech, which, you know, of course, would be in many ways the polar opposite of fair use that runs through uh, the edicts that you discuss. Um, and perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Um, is the censorship idea reflected in the sporadic interest in allowing as much Jewish printing as possible so as to disseminate knowledge. How does censorship play a role in Jewish conceptions of copyright? Um, over history, there's definitely been censorship. I mean, the rabbinic, uh, the, the uh, um, you know, rabbis would be very concerned about heretical literature or literature that might uh, um, bring the anger of the surrounding community, uh, surrounding authorities on the Jewish community. Um, but I think one can separate that generally from the disputes kind of involving the rights of publishers. Um, I mean, the, the only time, you know, the, the whole world of those disputes would involve books that would be of interest to the rabbis to have published. So, um, you know, books that would be considered to be heretical or secular, um, the writers of those books wouldn't ask the rabbis for permission or for reprinting bans, and uh, the rabbis probably wouldn't uh, give them either. We're chatting with Professor Neil Natano of UCLA, author of the book From Maimonides to Microsoft on KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Neil, in our remaining uh, 10 or so minutes, um, I, I do want to turn to some more modern issues and then kind of get your perspective on where we stand today uh, with regard to newer technologies in Jewish law. But there is what I think an issue that will resonate with many, a, a fascinating underlying concern about quality control uh, that runs through this history where uh, comments are made by judges that any kind of typographical error, if reproduced, can lead to bad law and bad judgments because that becomes the basis uh, upon which people understand the law. But you also quote uh, – you, you also use a quote uh, which I think deserves uh, primary attention, particularly given that Hearsay Culture's audience includes many academics. Uh, jealousy of scholars – increases wisdom uh which you know struck me as someone that writes law review articles right as being inherently true not just then uh but certainly now what is the role of quality control and of almost this pitting or rivalry uh or rivalrousness uh within scholarship in jewish law and copyright Right. I think the idea here is that um, scholars are uh, so interested in um, getting their views out 
uh, and in showing that they're the smartest and, and the best, uh, that they don't need the same exclusive economic protections uh, that other people in business uh, uh, might need. Um, so in the copyright context, a number of rabbis have said, uh, well, the, scholar the jealousy of scholars increases wisdom, therefore, that meaning there should be free competition. Um, and some, some rabbinic judges apply that to publishers of Jewish learning, books of Jewish learning, as well as, as scholars. Uh, so so that, that view, the jealousy of scholars increases wisdom, um, has always been kind of raised as a, a caution against uh, providing too uh, enduring and too strong of an exclusive right to the initial publisher. Is there, do you think, uh, within that uh, framework, um, a view that there are scholars or individuals that are worthy of greater protection? Because there also seem to be, on occasion, the notwithstanding the goals of the judges uh, to craft rulings based upon Jewish law, because we are human beings, personal relationships enter into it. Do Did you see any sense of pretext uh, within these edicts to suggest that there was uh, Ill illogical is perhaps too strong, but inconsistency in rulings from court to court or judge to judge? Um, I don't... Listen, there, there certainly are cases in which uh, rabbinic judges are influenced by who the parties are and who is asking them for a ruling. Uh, there's a famous case in 1550, well, the, the Maimonides in my, in my book comes from a dispute uh, involving two rival editions of the Maimonides seminal work of Code of Jewish Law called the Mishnah Torah. Um, and one of the, the proponents, I guess you would call him the plaintiff in that case, um, was a very well-known rabbi um, who was highly respected by the rabbinic judge um, and that judge, I think, just assumed that that rabbi's edition was far better than the rival edition. Um, so I think he was predisposed towards ruling one way, um, but I, I wouldn't say that that's been a cause of inconsistency in the interpretation of what the law is. There's, there's been, there are plenty of other reasons for debate and inconsistency um, in Jewish law without without looking at that necessarily. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I'm glad you said that because that would be my follow-up. Where have the fissures been uh, within this you know, multi-millennia history? Well, it, it, it's part of, um, it's, it, it's difficult to underestimate how much uh, rabbinic literature and culture uh, thrives on debate. I mean, almost every rabbinic authority looks at the previous authorities and distinguishes um, you know, his views from previous views, uh, comes up with his own theories. There's endless debate, and we see this in, in Jewish copyright as well, about what are the legal bases for copyright? Um, are these rabbinic reprinting bans, uh, do they really rest in, do they have a solid foundation in Jewish law? If they don't, do the rabbis even have the authority to issue them? Um, do they have effect uh, across territorial borders uh, beyond the country where the rabbi issued them? There are just multiple, multiple layers in which the rabbis debate um, what is the appropriate legal rule, and they can, you know, each can cite previous authorities that support their point of view. Um, 
So as I said earlier, this is, this is kind of like common law steroids. There, there's, there's no Supreme Court, no Supreme Court of Courts, uh, um, and there is just ongoing uh, debate about what the, the best and proper rule is. So, Neil, the, the almost the uh, penultimate question for hearsay culture would be tying it to uh, newer technologies. Um, you, you know, you note that uh, printing presses were at best viewed with ambivalence uh, by Jewish scholars. Um, you know, from your perspective, how is the Internet and digital media viewed today by modern Jewish law scholars and, and judges? Right. Well, certainly, I think there's a, a split between the ultra-Orthodox uh, and what we might call modern Orthodox. The modern Orthodox uh, rabbis accept, you know, accept the internet as they accept, um, you know, most aspects of modern life. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox uh, rabbis are much more reclusive, much more rejecting of modern culture, and have issued a number of rulings that uh, warn against the uses of computers, except very narrow circumstances, uh, warn against the use of the internet. Um, so ironically, the very rabbinic judges who issued the ruling in the Microsoft case, uh, according to Microsoft, at least some limited rights against uh, commercial piracy, uh, also warn against uh, any use of the internet. Um, and um, you know, any use of computers to view videos, uh, for example. Uh, so there's a, there is a, a real tension there. At the same time, we see rabbis um, doing their best to try to understand digital culture and, and accepting the, the challenge of trying to apply uh, ancient laws to a, a very, very new uh, technology. It's really fascinating. How, how successful within the Orthodox community... Um, and I know I've, I know there are splits, as you just mentioned. But how successful have the rabbis been in encouraging members of uh, that wing of Judaism to abstain from using technology? I mean, I, I could give a knee-jerk answer, but how ultimately the question becomes: How much are these uh, scholars able to influence modern behavior as they did in the past? Yeah. And that's a great question, and I would say um, certainly in Israel they've been spectacularly unsuccessful in preventing uh, the use of the internet, cell phones, and computer technology in the ultra-Orthodox uh, community. Um, there are dozens of ultra-Orthodox websites and web portals, um, and there are periodically efforts by the rabbinic establishment to shut them down, and they come back, and um, so I, I think it's, uh, this is a broader sort of sociological question looking at the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel, but I, I think um, ultimately the Internet has contributed to a decline of the authority of the ultra-Orthodox religious establishment uh, in Israel within the ultra-Orthodox community. To the extent that the Internet has been embraced by those Orthodox judges who are attempting to understand it or even, or even allowed it, um, has there been or are there efforts to, again, you know, frame the technology in a positive light, right, rather than viewing it as a source of uh, immorality or, or, or loss, of, uh, loss of direction? Um, are there efforts to, for lack of a better phrase, co-opt the Internet towards these more traditional religious goals? Um, well, there there is a use of I would say digital digital technology to to teach 
uh, text of books about of Jewish learning. Um, there are um, electronic databases um, that assemble the vast corpus of rabbinic literature on on, on CD-ROM or that are available on the internet. Um, so in that sense, I would say uh, yes. Um, you know, still, I, I wouldn't say that a sort of traditional uh, orthodox rabbinic view would be to embrace the freewheeling um, sort of lack of boundaries uh, culture of the internet that some secular scholars might might embrace. Right? It, it, you know, it, if it is embraced, it's seen as a a, a tool for uh, for work and for for gaining some knowledge and and for for study study of Jewish learning. So let me ask you this final question, uh, Neil, on your book from Maimonides to Microsoft: The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. So so you've got uh, copyright scholars, Jewish, non-Jewish, doing work today. Um, what lessons would you offer them, or what takeaways would you want them to take from your book for purposes of broader understanding of copyright law and advancement of it? Uh, well, one thing which I, I think I mean, in, in my book itself, I assiduously stay away from any policy argument or normative perspective. It's meant to be an historical uh, sort of granular description. Uh, but I think certainly one could ask: um, uh, Is a view of authors' rights and publishers' rights, which is grounded more in unfair competition than in literary property, you know, is that normatively superior? Uh, uh, to a proprietary view of, of copyright. So I think uh, uh, you know, Jewish law could be a, a, a rich ground for, for exploring uh, some of those issues. I think also from a, a scholarly comparative law perspective, Jewish law is simply fascinating to see uh, how a minority culture uh, within uh, the uh, control, not the direct control, but with, within a, a, a broader secular culture you know, how have the rabbis borrowed from secular copyright, in, uh, but, but still changed it right, in, in developing uh, Jewish copyright? So, Neil, uh, let me ask you this very, very last question. It really is the last one. I mentioned in the introduction you do have another work uh, coming out. Perhaps you want to say a couple of words about that before we close. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Battles Over Copyright uh, um, is a work... Uh, which is uh, written primarily for lay people. Uh, I mean, it's part of Oxford, Oxford University Press, which is my publisher for that book as well, uh, has a series uh, called the What Everyone Needs to Know series. So they have one about drug policy, one about the Arab uprising. I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens of them, and they asked me to do one about copyright law. Uh, so it's, it's sort of organized along sort of a frequently asked questions format. Um, Whereas ask the questions and then answer the question uh, in about four or five uh, paragraphs. Um, and it's been a real interesting uh, challenge to try to explain in, uh, some of the battles over copyright law uh, in, in that format. What's the uh, publication date on that? Um, 
it'll, I don't have a firm one yet. It'll probably be the end of this year. Excellent. Well, you know, on, on that note, then I can say, Neil, you know, I look forward to uh, hopefully having you back on the show to talk about those issues. I've, I've had Yochai Benkler and others, um, you know, work uh, cited here. Uh, Ed Lee uh, did a book last year on those issues, and I've talked to others about them. So I certainly would welcome your uh, involvement in discussion on hearsay culture about them. Uh, suffice to say for now, yeah, that would be great. Um, suffice to say for now, uh, I want to thank you for joining me today on Hearsay Culture to discuss the, this, this fascinating and, and honestly, I think really not even uh, known, much less understood, uh, aspect of copyright law writ large. Uh, the author is Neil Natano, the book From, Mike, from Mike Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. Neil, thank you for joining us uh, from Israel via Skype today. Uh, it's been a terrific discussion. I look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, Dave. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure. So this is the last show for the spring quarter on KZSU FM's schedule. Um, I'm going to take a, a short hiatus, although I will be recording shows uh, for the summer quarter, uh, which begins uh, in July of 2016. Uh, for now, I'll simply say that you can listen to Hearsay Culture this quarter at 2 p.m. Pacific time on Fridays at kzsulive.stanford.edu. You can also get all previous 250 odd shows by going to hearsayculture.com by going to Stanford CIS's website at cyberlaw.stanford.edu by going to the iTunes page for CIS or by going to pretty much at this point any of your uh, favorite podcast uh, aggregator applications if there's one that's out there that you would like to see hearsay culture on please let me know most recently I added hearsay culture to the to the tune in app but I'm happy to add it elsewhere um, as always I welcome Welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback by going to the contact page at hearsayculture.com or by emailing me at davidhearsayculture.com. Thank you for listening to the show today. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming, and have a great day.